this is the daytime show, Friday morning, and we're live here, myself, Marlene Halliday, and I'm here with uh, Val Gold. Val, uh, yeah, Val's here. Sorry I didn't give you a chance to say good morning there, Val. Do you want to say again? <laughs> Hello, everyone. Good morning to all our listeners. <laughs> Looking forward to our great guests on today's Indie Live Radio Show. Yes, yes. And um, we've got, we're going to start off this morning speaking to Heather Anderson. Hello, good morning. Absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, that's great. So um, I I heard Heather um, uh, talking to uh, Pensioners for Indy Edinburgh Group um, some weeks back, talking about the Internal Market Bill, and I thought, must get her on to Indy Live Radio. Heather was involved with the Farmers for Yes uh, way back in 2014, and um, I know you've got you know, active interest in rural economy, environmental targets, and an organic yeah, farmer. Yeah, I've been a, I've been an organic farmer um, here at Whitmere for 20 years, um, and we've been, you know, campaigning on sustainable agriculture and local food. Um, I got involved with Farming for Yes back in 2013, so a, a lot of standing in agricultural show fields at the Highland Show. <laughs> Um, organising events, talking to farmers who had been sold the line that they could only remain in Europe if they remained in the UK. Yeah. Unfortunately for many of those people who believed that, it's turned out to be completely untrue. And I know that um, the National Farmers Union of Scotland is suddenly realising that they are not being defended. Their interests, their rights, the standards of Scottish food are not being defended by this Westminster government. And um, the, you know, last week they were basically saying they had been bitterly disappointed yeah. because there'd been a motion from the House of Lords to ensure that imports of food into the UK were at least the standards that we have now, and the Tories voted against yeah, it, and the Scottish Tories it. voted against it, apart from Douglas Ross, who wanted to say he hadn't. So, <laughs> so I think is. they're realising the scale of the exposure that they're now, the, the damage they're about to face. What, what, we, what we're hoping to do, talking to yourself and probably other people over the next sort of few months, is just communicate a bit more about, the, about what you've just said, about the scale of the damage that this internal market bill, bill could do. I mean, I, I, I remember, well, it was way, must have been, well, it'd be 2016, I was listening to Ian Duncan Smith, talking, you know, so he was coming out with all the uh, Brexiteer rhetoric and I heard him use this phrase, the UK single market. Yeah. And when I just clocked it and thought, well, that's going to cause trouble because we don't have a UK single market. We've got four devolved administrations, governments, and uh, they cooperate, you know, try as best they can to cooperate. Now, I could understand the logic of why why you mentioned that, because if you're trying to do a trade deal with another country, you've got to be able to reassure that country that whatever agreement you, you set up and whatever um, way that they can say import, say it's importing beef, if you've got a single market, you can say, yep, that's the conditions in which you can bring beef into the country. But you can't say to them, you can bring that in and we'll sell it in England, but the Scots will want you to do something different. I mean, obviously, that won't work if you're trying to set up a trade deal. So I could understand the logic of this phrase, UK single market. But at the time, I just thought it's rhetoric. And anyway, I didn't think they were going to win the referendum. Yeah. But they have won the referendum. And here we are. And we're now at the kind of cutting edge of everything that that means. So yeah, could you just... Tell us a wee bit of the background, a bit more of the background yeah. too. Um, well, I, I first, the, the white paper was launched on the 16th of July and I uh, had a phone call from the BBC Nine saying, oh, you know, they knew I was a farmer and an SNP councillor and would I want to do an interview? So they came down here. I got hold of the, the, the white paper, um, read through it, and I gave them a long interview about how damaging this was um, and basically at that point saying at the minute there is an internal market in the UK um, so there is trade uninterrupted trade across the whole of the UK so the bill is by its first paragraph um, solving a problem which doesn't exist at the moment and we've always worked on the basis of common frameworks so one of the things that the National Farmers Union has been saying in in Scotland is we should be working to finalise the common frameworks. 
Um, what this bill does is say we're not having common frameworks. Um, the UK Westminster government is in charge um, of the rules and whatever we decide is going to happen will happen across the whole of the UK. So it's not about having agreement, consensus, collaboration, um, fairness across the whole of the UK. It's about all of the devolved nations being subjected to the same standards and rules. There are there are a number of worrying things about this bill, but one of the key things is the the rules will be decided by businesses. So businesses will have the right to say that's not fair, that discriminates against me, that gives me a commercial disadvantage. I don't have to do that. We shouldn't have to do that, and they can lower the standards. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a huge shift. So rather than science or the government deciding what the standards are or the European Union deciding on a basis of values and beliefs and principle about what the standards are, this is going to be down to a business saying, I don't need to bother putting a a Scottish flag on that because that'll cost me extra money. I'm just putting a Union Jack on that. I don't need to um, describe whether that beef is free range or grass fed. I'm just going to call it beef and and there's lots of information in the bill about how you pick away at all those individual criteria which are the safeguards that make sure that we know what we're eating and what we're buying and where it comes from how it was made and whether it's safe so this is a really really um insidious little bill it's got a number of incendiary devices in it um and and one of the things that's been of concern is um, there's so many things happening here that everybody rushes to the first um, challenge, like breaking and breaching international law. Yes, and um, that gets a lot of attention. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's also demolishing devolution. And meanwhile, it's also eradicating standards. And meanwhile, it's also <laughs> removing state aid. So there's so many attacks. Um, my worry is all the focus is on one bit of the bill, which is absolutely dreadful. And we don't notice just how bad all the other bits of the bill are. I did so, wonder that myself, actually, at the beginning, when all the, yeah. the the focus of the media was on Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol and everything. I mean, of, of course, I mean, there's a huge question, a worrying question in that. But at the back of my mind, I did also have a wee voice saying, I, I have, I, but what about... What about the rest of it? I mean, even these days, I'm sorry, I'm cynical enough to say, well, that's done deliberately so they can slide the other stuff, you know, in behind it. I think, you mean, there's probably a technical term for it, but it's about saying I'll distract attention over here. Um, You know, what's happened now? You know, he got a lot of attention, you know, uh, uh, promising that the UK government is quite happy to breach international laws. Mm -hmm. Pretty breathtaking. Um, And what we know is the House of Lords last night um, defeated the, the the government's proposals to breach international law by 226 votes. I mean, that's staggering. So that's enough on its own for the bill not to pass. But hidden in there are the next levels, which are about saying we are just overwriting the Scotland Act, we're breaching domestic law, and we're demolishing devolution um, because we're basically taking back under Westminster control um, decisions about state aid. So what, what happened previously was um, state aid would come to from Europe to Scotland and Scotland would decide what it spent its infrastructure and support money on. This bill absolutely says that it is going to reserve to the Crown um, the powers to decide um, on what happens with state aid. Now that means the Scottish Government has no say over it. So infrastructure, investment, whether we have new roads, new railways, a new hospital, that's all going back to Westminster. Um, it also gives the the Westminster government absolute control to intervene in education, training, um, you know, a whole economic development, infrastructure, culture, sport. These are all dissolved. The Scotland dev- devolved. Um, powers. The Scotland Act said if something was not deserved, it was devolved. Yeah, it's running a coaching horse the devolution settlement, isn't it? Absolutely. I was at a a meeting last night that was discussing the internal market bill. It was being addressed by Drew Hendry MP, and he said that he quoted um, 
people saying oh, that's terrible, I haven't written down the source of the quote, but, but I think it was just somebody's own opinion that exposes a bigger power, the biggest power grab since devolution was introduced and it is specifically designed to overrule the Scottish Parliament and the other devolved administrations. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and and so this whole thing about one of one of the things that's in the act that's really been there are many many things in the act that concern me, but a way back in at the end of the act, um, there's a paragraph which talks about the um, the regulation of the provision of distortive and harmful subsidy, and it basically says that any business, whether or not um, they are based in the UK or out with the UK can claim discrimination and um, unfair treatment if the product they're providing is being provided by a business here who receives what they consider to be distortive or harmful subsidy, uh-huh. right? That's yep. farming, right? Yep. So um, the UK government are, um, the depart- DEFRA, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, are reducing subsidy to farmers in England and Wales to zero over the next seven years. So the, 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 the current subsidy system will reduce to zero and there will be a replacement, which we don't have the details about yet. So over that period of time, any farmer in England or Brazil um, can say, I'm trying to sell beef to this market and they're getting an unfair subsidy. And I was really concerned about this because there's a list of exceptions. You might have heard about the issues with NHS the National Health Service is an exception at the moment, but agriculture isn't listed. So my concern was, does that mean that anybody can challenge the right of the Scottish government to support Scottish farming? And I've got a reply from Mike Russell, which says, as you correctly point out, agriculture agricultural subsidies are not mentioned in the exclusions to this clause. This means there is the potential for UK ministers, if they so decide, to declare farm subsidies to be distorting competition. Other stakeholders have expressed this concern. So it's it's this whole thing of they've taken the powers to intervene in reserved areas. We've had a, a Department of Agriculture in Scotland since about 1928. And, and this bill is allowing um, Westminster to basically say, you can't carry on supporting your farmers. Wow. So I, I, it's, it's deeply... Damaging. A previous incident, fairly recently, where money allocated by the EU for Scottish hill yeah. farmers, I think, yep. was appro- misappropriated by Westminster. And even though they admitted they'd done it, I think it was yeah. like, they basically said, well, the money's spent, so you can't have it. Was that well, not- that, that was way back. Yeah. We had leaflets about that back in 2013. So basically what happened... Oh my God. Yeah, uh, we've got it back now. But um, and, and Fergus Ewing has fought that relentlessly. Mm-hmm. But back in 2013, the level of support to Scotland's farmers was so low that the European Union decided it was unfair and disadvantageous and it had to be rectified. So they actually put extra money in because Scottish farmers were so hard done by compared to other European farmers. So it was the fact that the Scottish farmers were so badly treated which triggered the extra money, which the, the Tories then kept. Yeah. <laughs> you, couldn't make it, you couldn't make it up, could you? You couldn't make it up. <laughs> you're a, you're, I mean, so you're a farmer, um, Heather. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how necessary are these subsidies to farmers to keep the, the farming mm-hmm. industry going? Well... I, you know, I'm an organic farmer yeah, and yeah. I've spent um, 15 years arguing about the common agricultural um, policy, the CAP, yes. um, because the, it has a history. The CAP came in after the war to basically pay farmers to produce food whether or not anyone ate it because there were food shortages across Europe. So that was the reason for the CAP. And then every seven years, the CAP is reformed. Um, and there's been lots of um, movements in Europe to make the, the cap a fairer system. And what's happening now in Europe, now we've been taken out, um, is there's a farm to fork initiative. And Europe is basically moving the subsidy and support to support family farms, small farms, short supply chains, organics, sustainable food um, 
provision, right? So the cap is moving in the right direction, direction. Mm. Uh, right? At, at the point at which we've been taken out of it. Um, so that that's really frustrating because that would have supported um, sustainable farming in, in Scotland and a change towards more direct supplies rather than just, uh, you know, farmers being compelled to produce food for export. Yes, indeed. Um, and short, and short supply chains are, are yeah. important. They're going to be important going forward, aren't they, from the point of view of yeah. meeting climate, meeting climate targets and everything. Yeah. And one of the things um, I was on a European working group where we looked at short supply chains and the question they were asking was, does a short supply chain where the farmer supplying direct um, give the farmer more money? And we had people from all over Europe. It was fantastic. Um, and basically our finding at the end of our deliberations and research were short supply chains didn't give the farmers more money because the farmers had to cover the, the butchery, the labelling, the production, the delivery, the shop. You know, they had to meet all the costs of getting the food to you. But what, what it did was it created employment. So the biggest single benefit of short supply chains is you have to open a shop, you have to do a home delivery, you have to have a van driver. You know, so here on this farm, on this farm, if it was just farming conventionally, there'd be one person. We've had 30 odd people working on this farm at points because we had a cafe and a shop and a home delivery service and a butchery. So the real benefit of short supply chains is one, the customer knows exactly what they're getting and how that animal was reared you know it was that thing about you know tomorrow's beef is still walking you could come and see um what's happening the the the, the salad is still in the polytunnel we haven't picked it yet so you could come and see where your food is but you also create local employment because you're creating jobs yeah so that was the real benefit of it yeah yeah heather just sounds like you could be a a star of a a scottish version of the archers <laughs> <laughs> I married to a chap from Worcestershire. He's he's an uh, you know I, I've been married to him for a long time. He's an avid avid archers fan, so yeah. I I know all the stories. But actually, yeah. I mean, joking aside, that is a storyline that comes up in yeah. in the archers. You know, it's and an, I can't it's listen to the archers because I just think this is art imitating life. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the top's died, you know. It's like <laughs> it's too close to reality. Too close to reality, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think for us in Scotland, that whole thing about I did this wonderful session, I just loved it, with Women for Indy. And we had a hundred over a hundred women in a in a church hall. This is before COVID uh, hit, obviously. And um I did a talk about the history of food in Scotland and exports and the drovers and feudalism and all this kind of stuff and sustainability and how the future could be different. And then we gave uh, everybody went into groups of ten and we gave them fifty statements and they had to prioritize their top ten statements about how they wanted the food system to be. And then we went round the you know eleven tables and we came up with a composite ten commandments wow. for the future of food in Scotland and they put it in their manifesto. And it's just brilliant because it's about that whole thing about I'm I'm not an organic farmer because I'm elitist or niche. I think every I just think organic food is food without crap added. And I think everybody should have the right to have decent, clean, safe food. Um and, and it's and everybody should be able to afford it. Um so supporting us to get good food to people is, is critically important. It shouldn't be a, you know, a barrier of expense. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean that that sort of ethos is yeah. uh, seems like the complete opposite of what's now going to be, well, certainly going oh, to God. be possible. Yeah. Back from... to this awful bill. Yes. So, um, so one of the, it spends a lot of time in this bill talking about, it's weird because I kept reading it, think why are they spending page after page after page talking about um, methods of production, labelling, um, origin, you know, so they're, they're basically saying anybody can ex 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 claim discrimination on any of these clauses around how something was made, how it was packaged, how it was labelled, how it was harvested, how it was reared, right? Um, and then I found out quite a bit more about the WTO trading rules, right? So at, at the moment, if you could imagine a barcode, um, 
when a, something comes into the European Union, it is inspected. And the first two digits will tell you the category of product it is, you know, whether it's a light bulb or a carpet or a, a bit of meat. So say dairy, um, the first two digits are 04. The next two digits give you more detail about what kind of dairy, like whether it's yogurt or milk. The next two digits tell you information about where it came from, how it was produced. The additional digits, you know, you'll get information about whether it's been frozen, whether it's been processed, whether, right? Um, WTO rules only work on the first couple of digits. Oh, right. So it, it was then that um, awful moment where you think, all right, so this is getting us ready to let stuff in where we've got very little information about what it is because they don't have to declare it. So in the States, like in Scotland, um, we every single calf has a passport with a number on it. Yeah. And you have to get that passport within a week of that animal being born or you're fined, right? And so on every packet of meat we used to produce here, you know, we had the number about the, the beast that it came from. So you can trace it back. They don't have that in the States, right? They don't have traceability on their beef supply chain. So you could be eating a thousand animals in one burger and you wouldn't know, right? So you've got no way. And so if we talk about trading on WTO, that means we'll be told it's beef. We won't be told where it's from, how it was reared, how old it is, when it was slaughtered, how it's, whether it's been frozen. It's just beef. You know, so part of that thing was realising we've had all this argument about chlorinated chicken. You won't know it's chlorinated. No, no. Right? You, won't, you might not even know it's chicken. <laughs> right? So it's, it'll be white protein, you know? So it, it's that thing of by we'll removing... We'll not be laughing when it no. comes in. No, no. But that's, that's the really clever thing of you won't be able to argue about it, whether it's free-range eggs, barn eggs organic eggs because you won't know it's just eggs yeah right yeah i'm, um, I'm just i'm just amazed that i i'm just amazed that there is all that information in these barcodes already i had no idea yeah. about that yeah. and and that's presumably that's all come through uh european union legislation seven years yeah because yeah. what the european union's been trying to do is give the consumer information right so that you know that that was made in um, China or that was yeah. grown in France or so they've been using all these standards and regulations and checks so that when we buy a light bulb we know that you know it says what it says on the label it's been tested for safety and when we put it in the 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 lamp it won't blow up yeah. right that's what all these numbers are about yeah. um, and what this is doing is removing the need for all of that Right, so stuff can come in, um, and we won't have that information, right? Mm -hmm. And anybody producing that information, like the, you know, American chicken farmer, will say, "I've got to have access to this market. You can't discriminate against me, or I'll take you um, to the office for the internal market under the UKIM bill." And and the other sorry I know I've been talking a lot but there's a lot in this bill and one of the the key things it was to stop was um, pre preferential treatment right so the one of the examples it gave in the very first version of the white paper was to say that if the Welsh government or a Welsh council wanted to prioritise um, buying Welsh milk that would be prohibited because you wouldn't be able to prove. That there was any difference between Welsh milk and any other milk, right? Because they would be seen as interchangeable goods. So it's all this thing about removing the the markers which allow you to say, no, this is different, right? So Scottish um, local authorities would be prohibited from saying, we want to buy Scotch beef, we want to buy Scottish salmon, we want to buy Scottish dairy, because under this bill, any other producer in the UK or elsewhere can say that's discriminating against me, you're not allowed to do it. Because that's under WTO rules? Well, no, that's that's specifically in this bill saying you can't set up any barrier, ah. uh, right? So that's before you even get to the WTO. That's saying... In the bill? Yeah, we can't, we can't protect anything. We can't say, but we want this to be Scottish because then anybody else can say that discriminates against my business. So things like, I was worrying about things like nursing homes, 
Right, so in Scotland, um, we pay the living wage, the real living wage, right? Um, if you've got somebody providing a nursing home in England and Wales and Scotland, they could say that's discriminating against me if I've got to pay a higher level of um, pay wages in Scotland. That's a discriminatory practice. So it's like the so race to be... the bottom, the race to the bottom. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom, yeah. So it's all that stuff about it's removing all the ability to identify the safeguards and it's actually saying if you try to put any of them in we will say you're discriminating against the best interests of business God. and you can be then prohibited from doing it it's really really nasty so, so it's a bit like we've we've been in this situation for however many decades we're in the eu and we, and that's built gr gradually over a period of time that's built up a whole swathe of safety and information yeah. detail information and this bill it sounds to me then the way you're describing it it's a bit like the, the UK government has just taken one great big you know eraser rubber and, and it's just wiping it out yeah and it's not doing it by accident so the key thing about this bill you know we've got Brexit we've got all this sort of whether it'll be a low Brexit or no, bre no deal Brexit um, this bill is structurally engineering deregulation in the marketplace you know so there's nothing accidental in this bill this is about saying we're opening up the whole of the UK we are not going to allow anybody to um, give preferential treatment or cause towards certain products um, and anybody could bring anything in right so and, and here's how we're allowing them to do it and if there's any nonsense from the devolved nations will we'll basically deal with it through the office for the internal market and you'll be fined right so this is this this is premeditated <laughs> you know very detailed about what it's doing and nobody's looking at that because we've got the breach of international law over here we've got the de de devolution settlement it's it's really Machiavellian this bill it, it, it's a huge risk to us and it basically totally ignores the devolution settlement, it just yeah. says we're not interested, we're in charge I've got a question here from you from a listener for you Heather, uh, it's Fiona McGregor who's um, part of Clack Manager Women for Independence and she's listening in and she's got a farming question for you Yep. And our question is, given the need for food security and the issues with Brexit, should our planning laws be changed so that we don't give planning permission for housing developers to build on productive land? People need houses, but there is so much other land that could be repurposed. Local to her, uh, she says that they're about to get housing development on what is currently a farmer's field growing crops. Um, so what would you yeah. um, um, arable land land that's capable of producing cereals um, is the most valuable commodity in the world right? so if you actually take the planet um, three quarters of the surface of our planet is covered in water and one quarter of our planet is covered in earth, land um, one quarter of that is ice cap, one quarter of that is desert, one quarter of that is mountain. So one sixteenth of the surface of our planet is capable of producing anything. Two thirds of that is only capable of producing grass, right? And the tiny third of the sixteenth, which is the one forty eighth of the surface of our planet, is arable. Yeah. And we don't have another planet, right? And if you divide that amount of arable land by the people on the planet, We've got 2,000 acres, 2,000 metres square. That's what we've each got to feed all of us, right? And grow the cereals and the crops. And in Scotland, a tiny percentage of our land is arable. So we've got 85%, which is called less favoured area, which basically means it's hill and grass. We're brilliant at growing beef because they eat the grass. And it's, it's rainy, it's wet all the time. <laughs> and 15% of our land mass is arable. So for Scotland to allow anything <laughs> to be put on that unbelievably valuable resource um, is, is um, 
unwise, if you ask me. And I think it's raising people's consciousness about that and saying, you know, it's not that we've got an unlimited supply of um, arable ground. And once you put concrete in it, it doesn't work very well in terms of growing carrots or potatoes or cereal. Um, and we use a huge amount of our arable land in Scotland, almost half of it, to grow barley for whiskey. Yeah. So we're, we're not using it to grow. Um, we grow tatties and seed potatoes. Um, and there was a thing on the TV a couple of weeks, a week or so ago, about them losing their export market oh, because yeah. of the deal. Um, but we could do an awful lot here to grow our own veg, and we could use polytunnels yeah. and. You know, and, and so that thing about taking the future of food production in Scotland and actually saying, what land have we got? What is the best use for that land? And then um, supporting communities um, and farmers to use that land to its optimal use. You know, so if it's grass, it's for grazing, it's for livestock because they can eat the grass and we can't. And that produces protein. And but the arable stuff, we should be looking at far more um, horticultural production. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I get mad at that. Well, that's a really full answer for. Sorry, <laughs> it's a big thing. issue. No, don't apologise. No, I'm, I think I was paying you a compliment there. Right, right, that's right. what we want to hear. We want to hear from all your knowledge on this issue. That's absolutely fantastic. And yeah. um, if we could maybe go on, and I'm conscious that you can't be with us forever because I know you've got important council business before too. Yeah. Um, but um, one other area that worries me is human rights and I noticed oh. that the joint the UK Parliament Human Rights Committee which involve um, that comprises um, both Houses of Parliament the Lords and the Commons and it's a cross-party uh, committee involving Labour, Tories, SNP, Lib Dems, we have Joanna Cherry on it um, and they have published a report um, really setting out major concerns about that they say that the bill seems to envisage ministers not being bound by the human rights act duty to act com compatibly with the the rights of the internet you know the the convention on human rights and i've, I've also seen that a former um chief justice um he has said um that's lord Kerr. Yeah. quoted as saying that it, this risks driving the UK down a very slippery slope towards dictatorship so the, and I'll, I think you was also a Tory peer who yeah. announced it as well so I'm just wondering if you've got any comments on the human rights aspect of this act um, well I'm, ov I'm obviously not a, a lawyer um, and I'd be guided but, but I think you know if people at this level of <laughs> you know competence and authority are giving us these warnings yeah. um, they're probably right um, and and part of you know it's it's the rule of law has been flouted in this bill and to see a UK government basically saying that they're they're not going to abide by international law is so breathtaking. I don't think any of us have processed what that means. Um, and it's quite a big signal to send to the rest of the world um, that we're no longer to be bound by agreements and um, legal arrangements that we've come into before. So they couldn't be more upfront about what they're doing, really. They, you know, it says in the, in the bill that they're not going to pay any... They, they won't be um, restricted by international and domestic law. So we have been told yeah. um, what they're doing. They haven't hidden it. It's not in a buried clause, subclause. It's on the face of the bill that they will be doing this. So this is the world um, that we're heading towards in eight to ten weeks. So that whole sense of the UK um, suddenly being a deregulated zone you know, there were all these fears about casino capitalism, money moving in and out, goods moving in and out. Um, people who are involved in customs and excise are very concerned about counterfeit goods. Mm -hmm. You know, we were told that in order, it's all this take back control. Yeah, but we've got nobody to actually check the borders. Yeah. So for 47 years, our borders have been protected by the European Union. Now suddenly our borders are open, mm. um, and we've got no. We, we might have fifty thousand 
um, customs officers to manage them. And we're, we're just thinking that maybe we should get around and recruit people. It takes two years to train a customs officer to do their job. So there's the whole move towards nobody actually being there to check anything anyway. Um, there's the whole push for free ports, which are deregulated import stations, you know, and, and part of this bill is about taking the power for the UK government to create free ports where they want to, not the Scottish government, the UK government, uh-huh. right? And what we know is if you're a, a proper grown-up country, some like 40% of your um, tax income comes from customs and excise and taxation on products coming in. Freeports um, don't govern that, don't manage that, you know? So we're, we're, in, we're getting lots of very, very, very clear messages about opening up the UK market to whatever wants to come in, um, knowing that we won't be policing um, those entry points, knowing that we don't have the people to even produce the phytosanitation certificates to export the stuff we're exporting now, and knowing that there'll be massive car parks in Kent. Um, you know, so go basically, um, the, the road haulage companies kept saying nothing has been organised. And then, of course, Gove comes out and says, oh, you haven't got the paperwork in order. And you think, we've not got the paperwork in order because you haven't told us what the paperwork is. So a couple of weeks ago, we still didn't have agreement on the basic paperwork that has to be produced um, to export products, let alone who's going to check it. You know, so th- this is like, it's, <laughs> you know, we can't imagine how insane um this is going to be and all they're doing is building car parks you know and and saying oh yeah there'll be i've just got stuff here about the the number of customs and excise you know we're we're talking about fifty thousand customs officers and we don't have any all our customs officers got put into managing immigration not managing customs and excise scotland needs 800 and we've got a handful right so that's my worry that on the 1st of January this all grinds to a halt the food supply chain is really short you know so for here in our shop we order fruit and veg every Wednesday it goes to the European um, the organic producers in Europe by email um, through the the importer Um, it comes across the channel you know on Sunday we get it on Monday Mm. it's sold within a few days right and that supply chain survived covid so even during covid there were people in europe out harvesting fresh fruit and veg when we we don't have anything because we haven't got to the start of our growing season they they were out there working and that supply chain withstood the shock of covid but it's not going to withstand the shock of sitting in a car park in kent for three days we know where to go and food going off So we're, we are fearful. We are really fearful about the supply chain and what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm sorry to be so depressing, but it's know, really... I, But, you know, we have to face it. I mean, we're yeah. going to be facing up to the reality. So yeah. can I just say um, a wee reaction from Fiona there um, in her chat box, she, a chat thread, she says, that was a fantastic answer you gave to her question. Oh, <laughs> Right, okay, so we grow, we use the land we've got to grow the food we need. Absolutely, I'm right yeah, with you. Yeah. Well, listen, um, Heather, just picking up on what you said about um, custom and, and excise and, you know, everything that might fall on our heads on the 1st of January. What what about the 1st of January, as I understand it, that will also be where um, tariffs start getting applied on I know. Imports. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Gove has been doing all this stuff about, oh, we could trade under WTO rules. And then he made a big thing about saying there'll be no tariffs. He means no tariffs on stuff coming in, not stuff going out. And, um, you know, three years ago when I remember I had to, I did this presentation to a conference down in just after the Brexit vote. Right. And, um, I was in this complete state thinking, oh my God, there'll be 40% tariffs on beef, there'll be 60% tariffs on lamb. We're going to lose our subsidy. We're going to lose our export market. Our domestic market's going to be flooded with substandard food. This is terrible. And I spoke to Tim Lang, who's a professor of food policy, and said, am I completely over the top here? You know, is it really going to be this bad? And he said, oh, it's going to be much worse than that. Right? So we've known this 
has been coming for for four years, right? Um, and, and that's the frustration of none of this is a surprise. It's just been kept quiet. Yeah. And we know that, and, and Gove has no influence over the WTO. So in Europe, we, are one of, we were one of the 28 member states. We had um, the, the same vote as anybody else on um, standards, regulations, rules. We don't have any influence in the WTO. So the WTO will set the standards. So we're, we're talking, they talked about a minimum of, t of tariffs between 13 and 35% on all UK exports. That's curtains. You know, it, the average tariff means that all the stuff we export is suddenly prohibitively expensive. You can say as much as you like about all oh, the quality and all the rest of it. You know, you've just disadvantaged our produce. So there was all this thing about shellfish. What happened a couple of months ago was the Americans did a deal with the European Union to supply shellfish. The European Union are the biggest trading bloc in the world. They can buy from anybody, right? So the idea that um, the UK is, is going to be able to force the European Union to do anything is ridiculous. The EU will secure its supply chain and we will be charged tariffs through the WTO that we have no control over. And that threatens every single thing we export. And the Tories are just not coming clean on this, right? And telling people what that means. Yeah, yeah. Think is, you said earlier on you were apologising for de being depressing. Do you think there is some hope that the fact yeah. that the strong opposition in the Lords, yeah. is that a, a glimmer of hope at the light at the end of the tunnel? I, I don't know if any of that will make any difference in Westminster because, as, as you've said, Mark, they've got an 80 majority. The Scottish Tories don't lift a finger to defend Scotland. But I think what it does for us is it makes the situation extremely clear because when we were fighting our referendum in 2014, there were two unions. You know, there was being in the United Kingdom yeah. and being in the European Union. Yeah. That's not possible anymore. There's one union, right? Um, so there's an independent Scotland in the European Union or a very, very damaged um, and at-risk Scotland in this dreadful disunited kingdom. So this, so for us, this, the choice is much starker, much clearer. Um, I live in an area where there are a lot of people who are naturally conservative voters, and they're they're saying, well, if I have to choose a union, I'll choose the European Union. Yeah. If I have to choose the rule of law, I'll choose the rule of law. Yeah. So a lot of what's going on is so alien to conservative with a small c voters. It's so unpalatable what's happening here that they're deeply uncomfortable. So Scotland is saying we're going to be a decent, grown-up, um, mature country in the European Union. We're going to be outward-looking, internationalist, trade um, as part of the biggest trading bloc in the world, protect our suppliers and producers um, and countryside and environment and take our place in the world. That's what you've got as an offer. Or you can stay here and watch everything you fought for yeah. disappear. There's no future in in the option that we've got at the moment. So for us, um, it's a really strong prospectus. Um, and and what we know is that back in, I was a member of the European Parliament um, in, in January. Put the thought out of my head there. Yeah. Sitting there thinking, I'm so sorry. I'm so disappointed. This woman's not still in there. <laughs> Honestly, um, you just cry because you go to Europe, right? And you get this mindset in the UK of we're this too wee, too poor, too stupid, you know, all this kind of stuff. You go to Europe and people say, Scotland's doing amazing things on climate change. We want to do more of what Scotland's doing. Scotland's leading the way, um, you know, in the, the one, you know, the recycling economy and the, you know, so we're, we're considered as having a leadership role and as being incredibly valued members. Yeah. And I think in 2014, they didn't get what the problem was, but my God, they get it now. And and the testimony to that is that 700 and odd European MEPs stood up with us and sang Auld Lang Syne. Now, that's not nothing, right? That, I remember seeing right? So, you know, we had to get permission from the president of the European Parliament to sing in the chamber, right? And then, and, and people agreed to sing Rabbi Burns. I mean, so 
please. It's just that thing of Scotland is so highly regarded and so well thought of um, and so seen as a member of that um, European Union of small nation states. It was just heartbreaking to be taken out of it. It's a bit like being put under house arrest, you know, because you just think Scotland has an international role to play. We, we've got a role to play in the world and we're getting hauled back here and told to stay in the bedroom and shut up you know so we've got to stand up on the 1st of January the United Kingdom becomes a third country it is no longer um, got to be treated as a member state with enormous courtesy and respect and we become a third country we go to WTO rules we're at risk um, for a whole load of things and we just need to see that Scotland is seen as an accession state. I know that there's work already going on on all of that, but we just need to get our head up, look straight ahead and say, we're not staying with this lot. This has nothing to do with us. We believe in law, human rights, values, the environment, high standards. We've got a place to play in the world. We're leaving, you know, and, and that's our mission to, to get independence yeah, and be a, a real a real country in the world. You're well said, Heather. And you mentioned your brief but very important stint as an MEP. I believe that you are a prospective candidate now for MSP in Holyrood. Do you want to say a few words about that? Just yeah, to I, I'm, in a, I'm in a difficult position because I, I I would love to be a, a, an MSP in Holyrood. I've, I've had to go for two seats. Um, I've gone for Edinburgh Western because there is an incumbent here um, and then I decided that I would also give the people where I live um, the right to have a vote so I put in for this seat so it's a very difficult situation to be in it's up to the voters, it's a secret ballot but I'm willing to play my part wherever it is, you know, I'm a a councillor, we've got a lot to do here, I'm involved in the South of Scotland Regional Steering Committee, we have to win independence in the South so I will be working um, towards the goal of independence, you know, wherever I am, yeah, and yeah. very happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. That, that comes that comes over so clearly, actually, when you when you when you speak about all of this, um, uh, Heather. And yeah, I, I I think I caught you on one of the times you were speaking in the Parliament, European Parliament. I caught it and thought, God, she's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe, you know, at one point you, you might even get back there. But uh, if yeah. in the interim you have a, a, a stint in, the, in, in Holyrood, I'm, I'm sure you would. You've obviously got yeah. such a knowledgeable background in this whole area. And although we've been talking a lot about farming and, you know, food um, quality and things, I mean, it's much, much wider than that, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. all sorts of, well, you mentioned light bulbs yourself. Yeah. It's, all, yeah. it's all goods and services. Um, goods and services. So yeah. then you get into what qualifications of people go, how can you trust that this is, yeah, um, yeah all, this is everything. This is yeah. everything being opened up. Is there anything that you think Holyrood can do to, well, obviously oppose this bill, but kind of yeah. mitigate it a bit is there, is, um, is there anything well what, what I was thinking was um, the Office for the Internal Market which is body the unelected quangle that is going to be in charge of administering this bill isn't going to be set up um, until the end of 2021 so all the people who are going to be claiming unfair discrimination and um, lack of mutual recognition may not be able to claim that immediately so I think there's definitely stuff that local authorities can do to say we're procuring Scottish produce. You know, we're going to shorten the supply chain in every local authority in Scotland. Um, we're going to prioritise getting Scottish dairy, Scottish beef, you know, Scottish tatties. You know, we're going to make that happen so that as this bill kicks in and then that is challenged, that's a very clear example to people in intangible terms of what this abstract bill's about, you know? So this is about saying, this is the UK government telling us that we can't take dairy from our Scottish dairy producers. So I think there's, if we could get local authorities to make sure that's in place, um, so that when this bill begins to kick in, we've got something really tangible to fight about, that might help. Um, the the Holyrood has withheld legislative consent. Um, Holyrood is working on the the continuity bill to basically say we're keeping track 
with European um, standards and criteria. So I think what we have to do is behave um, as a nation in waiting. You know, like the, the really interesting about the European, Gove wouldn't give me authority to go and I just went. So for the first three weeks in Europe, I didn't have an email saying that I was the um, authorised representative because it's a UK appointment. So this is their pettiness of they just think, well, we're not going to send an email, right? Um, so I just went, I took part in the, the group debates. The IFA Green group um, got me a, a, a name so the, the translation the translator knew who I was, unbelievably warm. And then eventually, um, with all the fuss in the House of Commons and all the support of Team SNP in Westminster, Gove sent the email on the Monday night um, before the vote on the Wednesday. So it was, you know, and I just thought yeah. he must have thought, God, we better having her inside that chamber than outside that chamber moaning about not being in there. So, <laughs> we'll just, <laughs> we'll just, so I've got the Guinness Book of Records of being the shortest serving MEP. But I keep saying uh, these are this, these are not my last four days. These are my first four days, and yeah. we will be back. Um, and great. so that's great. Listen, Heather, I, I mean, I, I think we have to. I know you've got a meeting coming up actually in about five minutes, I think. So I think we really have to let you go. But um, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it's not just hearing the, you know, the factual detail and everything that you've got at your fingertips, and hopefully a lot more people now are, are listening to it. But it's actually also kind of picking up on your perseverance and, you know, and, and uh, you know, enthusiasm for it all. So great. Yeah. And uh, if that if that gets a channel in Holyrood, fantastic. And hopefully at some point uh, also through uh, Brussels. And Kat, yeah. Val, do you want to just finish off? I want to say that we have a comment um, from one of our listeners, Rosalind Falls, listening in Kelvin Dale. She says, really loving Heather. She would be a real asset to Holyrood. <laughs> And days, but I, I hope we will see you either in Holyrood in the future for whatever constituency at some point, Heather, or back in representing an independent Scotland in yeah. in the EU. I hope very oh, much. Thank you. We're standing in a field talking to farmers. Yeah, <laughs> 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 wherever I am, I'll still be going on. Thank you very much. You've been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you for having me on. In the light, God,